When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's more like I made like a pair of sandals that had crushed glass inside of them. And this year I want to make like a croc cowboy boot. I don't know. You're just trying to do something. You know, you really want to get into something new and really a new way to say the old thing. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip hop moguls, world class athletes and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. modern world can be overwhelming. We're constantly bombarded with an endless stream of information that's often chaotic, random, and conflicting. In an attempt to make sense of it all, sometimes we ignore nuance and try and force things into convenient groups or labels. But what happens when someone defies categorization and refuses to fit into any established genre or type? Our guest today is a prolific musician who's earned a reputation for his genre-defying sound. Drawing from an incredibly diverse range of influences, his music's been described as an eclectic blend of hippie freak, alt-folk with a Latin twist. With each album, he's managed to reinvent his style and push the boundaries of what's expected. It's earned him a loyal fan base that spans from Santiago to Silver Lake. So how do you consistently create inspiring, evocative, and fresh-sounding music after 10 albums, multiple side projects, and countless collaborations? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with this Texas-born, Venezuelan-raised, and San Francisco-educated artist who continues to blur musical boundaries. Today, singer, songwriter, and an artist with some unexpectedly adept skateboarding skills, Mr. Devendra Banhart. Devendra Banhart, thanks for sitting down, man. Terrific to see you. Nice to see you, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. We definitely got a few friends in common. Big shout out to your drummer, Greg, for helping to facilitate this. <laughs> thanks, Greg. Yeah, he's the man. Yeah, you know, it's an honor to ruin your otherwise illustrious <laughs> run of good interviews. Here comes the dud. I'm going to do my best to keep this one on track. So, you know, I've been a fan of what you do for, for quite some time, and I've read a lot over the years, some really cumbersome descriptions of people trying to define your music, you know, like from, I'll read an example, to singer, songwriter, Latin-inspired, hippie, alt-folk, you know. <laughs> I feel like ultimately trying to kind of pigeonhole you and put you in a particular genre is, is not fair and it's reductive. But, you know, I do want to ask you, for people who may not be familiar with your music, I'm curious, how do you describe what you do? Like, how would you describe the type of music you make? Well, would you describe yourself as a photographer? 
That's a great question. I mean, I guess it's is an existential question. I mean, and then what kind of photographer are you? Yeah, I mean, me personally, I have kind of been in a way like shifting away from photography. I think that's kind of what this podcast represents because I'm finding that I think it's the the stories behind photography or what ultimately really inspire me. And I'd never have been incredibly talented at being the person who goes into a studio and is meticulous about hair, makeup, set design, and, you know, spending eight hours doing that. And that, that's not my lane. I'm much more inspired to be around creative people and, and, and tell their story. So, I mean, that's, that's how I would answer that. I read what, an interview you did, and you said that you spent a lot of time photographing everything that was occurring before and after those surfers were catching the wave, which is what an, an entire different genre of photographer is focused on. And for you, is really about what's happening before and after. And that's where the story is, of course. That's where the emotion is. And this is an extension of your photography doing this because you're interested in capturing a moment. And you're basically, you're interested. I can just stop there. And that already, you're already ahead of most people I've ever met. Oh, thank you. You know, I don't know if there's anything more attractive subconsciously even, than being around someone who's curious and interested. I mean, do you think a lot of your music stems from a place of curiosity? I've always felt that I should be an incredible inspiration for people that have no talent. Because look at me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to sing or play an instrument or write. Come but on, I just, let's, you're selling but yourself I just short. Stuck to Come it. On. I just stuck to it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel like I have genuine imposter. I don't have imposter syndrome. I'm an imposter. <laughs> no, but I feel like you've really carved out a unique place for yourself in the music industry, or if not the music industry, at least the art form of music, you know, and I think all of this kind of somewhat ridiculous terms that people try and apply to you, you know, whether it's this like, you know, alt folk, hippie, Venezuelan. I've decided to embrace, I say freak folk all the fucking way now. Okay. But I'm also totally kidding, of course. It's like from the beginning. I was 21 when the first, my first record came out. And I recorded that record. You know, I guess everyone's first record is a really... It's an interesting thing. Like, I should listen to somebody who... Like David Crosby, you know, David Crosby, you know, just died. And I should listen to his this last rec record and his first record and just kind of see what the, the themes are. When you have a career like that that spans decades and decades... It might be interesting. I feel like I haven't done this, but consciously, just to find the, the similar threads. Are you still singing about the same thing? I think that's so fascinating, right? Why are you still singing about the same thing? And we're all, are we all singing about the same thing? Are we all singing about not singing about the same thing? But I started, I'm just thinking about that first record, how it really isn't about that year or those two years. It's really about the beginning of your experience on this planet. So you have this entire kind of first chapter of your life to, to pull from. So that your first record is always so unique, right? And then after that, it's if this is the thing you're into and you're going to keep doing, it's like, actually, it's funny. I listened to the one with the sneaker man who makes the sneakers. Tinker. <laughs> Tinker. Tinker Hatfield. The sneaker man who makes the yeah. sneakers. <laughs> Fuck, that was a really good episode. That was great. Thank you. And I thought about something he'd said. That's why I immediately agreed to do this, because I heard in your voice immediately a genuine curiosity. And that's so rare, so fucking rare. And I want to be like, I want to be warmed by the candle of your curiosity. I'm like, I want to be near that. But he was saying that the sneaker needs to be like improved every year. There's that level of like utilitarian 
consideration? Like, is this thing going to be better for whatever the sport is? Obviously, I guess basketball. And just like, you know, is it an improvement on the last model? And it's, it's so different with music. You're, even though you think, I, I want this record to be better, but maybe it's more like I made like a pair of sandals that had crushed glass inside of them. And this year I want to make like a croc cowboy boot. I don't know. You're just trying <laughs> to do something. You know, you really want to get into something new and really a new way to say the old thing. I mean, it gets me into my, into my next question. It leads, it leads right into that because I feel like there's, there's certain bands or certain artists, and you may even be big fans of theirs, but you get the sense that you've kind of already heard every song that they're ever going to write. And it comes down to almost like they're just rearranging the same puzzle pieces for their new album, you know, and some people find that comforting. But and I think that's why I really appreciate what you do is that each of your albums is very different and unique from the previous album. But I'm also wondering, has that been alienating to a degree to a part of your fan base? Like, do you feel like there's a certain aspect of your fan base that's changed over the years because maybe they wanted something that they expected as familiar and you didn't give it to them? Or do you feel that you have a fan base that's at this point loyal enough that is going to kind of follow you wherever you go? I don't know. I've only noticed that with live performances, that's the only place I've noticed things really changing because... I always wanted things to change so much from rec from from in, within each record. The first record is just me and a three, not even a four track, whatever, a three track and answering machines. You know, it's really I didn't have access to stuff, and so it's 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 actually you know kind of monochromatic in that sense. But then once I could have other instruments in there, and I was playing with other people, and once I met Greg, I just wanted every record to go everywhere. I wanted to like explore every type of music and every era of music, every year. I wanted to just pull on that library of basically history. You know what I mean? What is the first song ever recorded? And how can I implement a little bit of that? And how can I make, how can I reference something, you know, in a subtle way within a, let's say a Bossa Nova song, but let's reference something like a little blues rig. <laughs> blues rig? Who's blue? Yeah, I wanted to make really like blues rig. But that was all really important to me. And I still feel like I'm hung up on that first question because I remember not really giving a shit about what it was being labeled as because the only thing I ever didn't love so much was that when it would be written that it's free association improvised lyrics. And that's the only thing I've ever really given a shit about. It's the only thing I really spend time on. At the beginning, it was a little bit like blasé about what genre. That was the fun part is like, I've got these words okay, let's just almost reel a fortune and pick a style of music and let's have fun doing our version of that. And everyone was into that. We really had a communal kind of thing going and we lived our own weird kind of 60s in Topanga in a house where we all lived and Greg lived right next to in the same house. The genre was so, it was secondary to what the song is about. But the work that went into the lyrics was for me so, like I said, I'm not talented. I just sit there and hit my head against the wall till it falls down till I get somewhere. And so then when it was written, this presumption that, oh, this, that I probably just sat there, pressed record, got high, and went blah, 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 that always was a bit of a bummer. But that's just an ego trip anyways. Who cares? I know what I mean, whatever. But back to what, you're, what I was saying about how I've seen the change, it's more that when I started playing, I was just kind of screaming, you know, in a way. I mean, literally screaming. And to some degree, I still scream, but really it was jumping. I had a lot of energy, and I'm also really exerting myself and it was a lot of outward expressions of what I'm trying to get at 
and contorting myself and just trying, because I'm feeling it, you know, I really want to feel it and I want to be honest. And I know that an audience is subconsciously wondering if the person means it. And I'm like, I fucking mean it. I want to prove that. And it's just blah, and I'm just going for it. And I want to be naked in front of you. I really want to be naked. I don't want to hide behind anything because then I'm, you know, because that's all going through my mind early days. And as time has gone by, everything goes inward, inward, inward. And I'd like to get to a place where I'm performing, where I'm emoting all of that energy and that, and an honest expression, but I don't need to jump around and scream it at you. I can do it from a much quieter, a still place. And I think that's more, in a way, more powerful, or at least feels much more in tune with where I'm at now. And it's an interesting, to me at least, in a, in a more challenging way of, can I really get across to you whispering or very subtle moves? And that I found, has some people found it very disappointing. I went to a show and you barely moved and you were, <laughs> um, you were qu- talking so quiet. What the fuck? I wanted to see some weird shit. I still dance terribly. I don't know how to dance. And I still dance, you know, intentionally bad, but I have fun doing it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned how you the lyrics affected you. One of my favorite songs of yours is a really heartbreaking, quiet song called I Remember. And I've actually heard a story of you breaking down on stage while performing that song. And it obviously comes from a very personal, raw, intimate place. And it really it shows on that lyric track. I mean, I think that's why it resonates with me. But I'm wondering, do you find that most of your songs come from a place of personal experience that evokes lyrics? Or is it more often you have a melody that you're working with and you have to write lyrics to fit into that melody? I think it's, it both occur. But when there's a melody, it's like, wow, what is this melody trying to say? And it feels really collaborative. And actually, both of them are pretty collaborative. You're collaborating with this melody going, what are you trying to say? And the other one, you're collaborating with the lyrics saying, what do you sound like? Is there Hebrew letters on your hat? Yeah, it's New York. Oh, it's New York. And <laughs> That's cool. It's funny. My Israeli stepfather, it was always, he's like, wait, we, because I can think he reads we in Hebrew, I think. And he was like, what does that mean? I was like, you're overthinking it, dude. It's Yankees. It's NY. That's so cool. But we, that's great. Yeah, that's good too. <laughs> we, York City. You know, so it seems like these days, everybody has access to everything anytime they want it. You know, you have your phone in your pocket, there's the internet, you have access to any type of music or film. But it seems like people from a certain generation, I would suspect you and me, they had a much different relationship with music growing up in the sense that there was almost a transformation that they went through at a certain age. In other words, when you're a kid, you're exposed to music almost passively, like whether it's through your parents maybe an older sibling or friend, definitely the radio. And then at some point, usually like in your early teens, you kind of start to really like seek out your own identity and you you carve out music that means something to you and you kind of like explore and find your own music. And I'm curious, like what were you first exposed to as a kid musically? Like what acts or what bands were you exposed to? And then what were some of the artists that really resonated with you when you started to really kind of seek out and, and create finding yourself and your own type of music? Well, I have an answer, obviously, to that. Not obviously, but I've got an answer. But I want to ask you if you have an immediate answer to the question, what song has made you cry the most? Ooh, I'd have to think about it, which isn't to say that it hasn't happened. Okay, well, I'll answer. Then you, while I answer, you think about what song is to you is maybe the most difficult to listen to or in the past or through your life, you remember it, it really broke you down and you wept and wept. 
you know, and I recently went to a funeral and we're all just crying together. And that's rare to cry. Collectively. Yeah, collective tears. Collective, is that a band? Collective tears. Collective soul. <laughs> Should be. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, crying together is, um, wow, that is a pretty sacred experience. And whatever the means, I'm sure that there's, Obviously, maybe doing some plant ceremony, medicine stuff, you're going to be crying together. But that's such an intense experience, internal experience as well. And you're kind of dealing more with your own psyche and, and nature. And there's something like a very sober collective crying. I, I don't know if that's what, you know, you find that typically at memorials and funerals, right? But outside of that, be interesting if that was part of our regular thing. Like, oh, what's today? Tuesday. Oh, yeah, we're all, I'm going to go meet up with some strangers and cry. But it's really a powerful thing. Anyways, I hope you're still thinking about yours. And my answer is that I grew up in, I was born in Texas, but I grew up in Caracas, Venezuela. And so the music is salsa, merengue, cumbia. And that's about it. You know, to a less, yeah, not even bossa, that's Brazil. So you're getting a lot of, just salsa, merengue, and cumbia. I mean, unavoidable. Blasting out of every car and in the mall and, and, any, and in the radio. Did you appreciate that or was it just kind of just part of your DNA because of where you grew exactly. up? Exactly. It's just part, it's just, it's almost like the way I listen to ambient music now, it's this kind of just background thing that's always going, that's the setting a mood. And, and it's a beautiful mood to set. Salsa and merengue and cumbia, they're, it's such celebratory music, but the lyrics are typically pretty sad. Somebody left me. I'm heartbroken. <laughs> I miss you. I need you. The, the sheets are wet with your freight, with the remembrance of you. <laughs> you know, it's like this. But I thought that was in, I wasn't even aware of that. So anyways, that's the music that kind of permeates the environment there. And it wasn't until I moved to America. And it was all through skateboard videos. It was all through skateboarding. And I was obsessed with skateboarding in Venezuela. We had, I got Propaganda and Bandis and Animal Chin. And those were like the most coveted VHSs you could possibly have. And even my exposure to art would have been those power boards. Like those graphics, Mike McGill's graphics and Ray Barbie's and Frankie Hill's, like that was the coolest shit I'd ever seen. And it was immediately cool. And I didn't connect with the music of the PAL videos. Only later I appreciate it. It's this cool kind of surf punk bands that are making, where there's like one band that did all that music and it's fine. It's cool. It sounds like an Ugly Kid Joe demo to me and it's fine. <laughs> and, I, and I dig it now. But it didn't resonate with you because you had no context for it? Yeah. No, I wasn't even attracted to the music. It didn't hit me. It was, it felt like what's cool is, is skateboarding is cool and these people are cool and the sketches and the story is awesome to me and the friendship is so cool like when they would do those runs like everyone kind of skating for people like whatever lance mountain ray barbie and, and i don't know who else everybody else tommy guerrero they're all skating together that brotherhood or sisterhood it's a sense of community finding your tribe yeah exactly that was immediately attractive to me but it wasn't the music. It wasn't, that was when I moved to America and I'm still obsessed with skateboarding and skateboarding changes. And then suddenly I'm watching skate videos and I'm hearing the Smiths and Bad Brains and John Lennon solo I'd never heard. And Frank Sinatra I'd never heard. All those trans old videos would have the little ads and somebody used the good life for one of their parts. And I'd never heard, oh, the good life. And I, oh, this is cool. I didn't even think of that as my parents' music. That's why I got into it. It wasn't, you know, I got into Frank Sinatra because of skateboarding. That's funny. And Instant Karma was an escape video. And uh, a lot of Toy Machine was really big too, because suddenly you see, like, you know that something is weird and avant-garde here. 
and is a little bit more artistic. And so the, Ed Templeton was definitely a big influence. And of course, Mark Gonzalez, you already know like, wow, it's, it's about style and it's about freedom. And it's about, this person has an immediate signature. He's kind of the Picasso of skateboarding, right? And the big moment was Keenan Milton had a song by Desmond Decker called Oh Seven Shantytown that everyone's heard. It's in like the harder they come. But I'd never obviously heard any of that. I mean, I'm 13 at this point. I'd never heard anything like that. It was the best feeling I'd ever had. I'd never had a better feeling till I, till I heard, saw in the chocolate video, Keenan Milton <laughs> skating to Desmond Decker. And I just wanted to make music after that for sure. Wow, that's really interesting. So, I mean, you have, you have a really big following in Mexico and in South America. I think a lot of people in the States don't really comprehend just how big rock music and how big certain U.S. acts are in Mexico and South America. Like when I was working with the Strokes, we went down there and they played in Mexico City. And I think other than some festival shows that they'd done, that was the biggest show of their career to date. You know, it was like a massive arena, 20,000 people, you know. And is there a particular country that still surprises you how enthusiastic they are for you to come play there? Like, where do you draw the biggest crowds? Have you remembered the song that's made you cry? I think I do. I think I'm going to go with, I would probably say God by John Lennon is one of the songs that really gets me. I was just thinking about that song the other day. Because it's such a beautiful song on one level, but it's a very angry song. He's he's really furious in that song. And then, you know, it's kind of after the Beatles breaking up and everybody putting the weight of the world and what he's supposed to be and I represent on his shoulders. And he's just talking about, he's like, I don't believe in Dylan. I don't believe in Elvis. I don't believe, it's just me and Yoko. And, you know, thinking about that song in context of what happens to him, it's like, I'd love that song. You just gave me the chills, man. You just gave me the chills. And I don't want to put down anyone. And I don't think that it's everyone's responsibility to do what he did. But can you, at that moment, he's the equivalent to whatever the biggest pop star is in our world right now. And there's some people that are really, you could tell they're just being really honest and they're interested in being really honest. Like big pop stars like Billie Eilish, I really, I think she's just trying to do her thing, really be honest, right? But imagine coming, whatever, whoever the biggest person is and they just start a song with, God is a concept by which we measure our, our which measure our lives. Pain. Pain, by which measure our pain. Yeah. Oh. I'll say it again. He repeats it twice I'll just say to it really again. drive Can it Can you yeah. imagine whatever the biggest pop star with this line like opening like that? It's really heavy. Yeah, you gave me the chills. I was thinking about that line just the other day. And I also really love, there's a line in, in All Apologies by Nirvana that just gets me every time. It's just, it's like, in the sun, we are married. In the sun, we're buried. It just kind of like, it's such a beautiful, yeah. succinct way to kind of sum up our experience of life on earth, you know? These are beautiful lines, but do you have a distinct memory of weeping to them? Not to that song in particular, because it's such a, I mean, I think the song itself is kind of, it doesn't lend itself to that. I don't know, it's much more of an upbeat song. It's something about God. It's just like, it's, it's a sad song, you know, it's, it's beautiful, but it's sad. It's like, you almost want to cry to that song. I was recently, not recently, a couple of months ago, went to this place in Jamaica and did psilocybin for a week. It's intense, a place called Myco Meditations. I didn't see any of Jamaica at all. You just fly there. They drive you to the like compound. And, and then you're just there with these therapists. For me, it was like 12-hour trips. And then the next day, it's all just in integration and therapy with like a union psychologist, a family trauma therapist, whatever, and two other therapists or whatever. 
one of them actually maybe was even uh, specialized with PTSD. When you go to something like that, is there, and you don't have to go into specifics, but I mean, is there a particular issue or an area that you're specifically going there to address that you want to face? I went because I ran into a, I usually walk around this lake with a buddy of mine and once every couple of weeks and we just catch up and she's like, oh, let's do, let's do the lake. Okay, great. I'll see you there. And, and she was, I saw her and she was like radiant, you know, radiant. What's up? You've been hitting the tanning booth. And she tells me that she goes, she went to this place called Micro Meditations in Jamaica and did all. And she was terrified and, you know, she's, her brother committed suicide and some years ago, and that's been always ever present in her psyche and in her heart. She went maybe, you know, so frightened that that would, he would appear to her, she'd have to continue to deal with that. But she went through it and she came out on the other side in this incredible way. Cause you know, there's no bad trips, right? Just hard trips. And actually I always said this, like doing plant medicine, it's supposed to be a trial. It's not a, it, for me at least, in my opinion, <laughs> my perspective is that it's a trial. You're going to go be tested. As opposed to what, like a, a recreational pursuit? As opposed to, oh, I realized that I am the Messiah. You know, people get messianic or they go, oh, wow, I realized that I'm just doing it all right. And that's also fine. And maybe that's possible. Maybe you are doing it all right. So I don't want to project my experience onto somebody else. And it's so subjective. But my feeling is that the value of it is the trial. So it's unpleasant because healing is unpleasant. You know what I mean? This, we have a concept that the healing is like going to the spa or something. I mean, that's beautiful. Self-care. I dig it. I go to the spa. But, re, but healing is painful. So anyways, they're radiant. They're like almost levitating. And I just immediately, the minute as they're, they're telling me about it, I don't go, oh, I need that. I immediately start to go, that's good for you. <laughs> but you know, I don't need that. I don't need that. You don't need that. The little voice going like, no, you're, you're good. You don't need that. You got your thing. You got your Buddhist you meditate. You're good. You're good. You're good. And so, but I have enough wherewithal that I know that when I start to hear that voice, the, the avoidant voice, basically the voice that's saying like, oh, it's good for other people, but you're okay. You don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. I know that it's fear. And so it's like, why am I afraid of that? And so <laughs> I said, fuck it. And I bought the ticket and I went. All of this, Jesus, this is so long-winded, I'm sorry. But this is all <laughs> to say that while I'm in that, in that place and having these very, very long trips, and these trips start early. You're like, it's like have coffee and then do five grams of mushrooms. It's intense. At one point, I saw almost a, in space a ball of all of men, of humankind and all beings, all beings. The, the, how about this? In space, I saw a giant ball of fire and light that was a manifestation or, or an expression of every being's longing to be close to whatever, to what God is, let's say, whatever, forget that word, but what that word is, whatever that word is, whatever goddess, whatever God is, whatever that, whatever pure love is, whatever the source is. And I just saw that ball of longing for that source, to be near that source. This is all, anyways, John Lennon wrote a great song. Okay, continuing. <laughs> I want to get into that for a second. So in that moment, when you're experiencing it, or maybe right after, it's real, it's pure, it feels transformative. How long does that feeling stick with you? For the rest of your life? For the rest of the week? Does it disperse? It's like a rainbow. It's just a rainbow. The rest of the time is the sky. So I was aware that this rainbow would quick, soon fade 
And at that moment, I remembered this moment in the life story of Ramakrishna, where one of his disciples says, why is there so much suffering on, in this world? And Ramakrishna said, to thicken the plot. <laughs> That's great. And I just knew, okay, I'm going to go back to the plot after this. Well, so, I mean, your creative output is very diverse. Obviously, you do music, but you, you paint, you write poetry, you've done art installations, you've collaborated on short films, collaborated with a housewareless line. I actually just realized recently that you're a very talented skateboarder, which I didn't know about you. I saw some old videos. Oh, you say that to all the girls. <laughs> but that said, is music your first love? I mean, are there other creative outlets that you found that you just can't express through music? Or did you just happen to become a successful musician? I think music was definitely what felt like my secret. And it felt like, yeah, from early on, early on, it felt like my secret thing. And it must have been when I sang a song that I wrote when I was eight years old for my whole family. Everyone was alive then. Everyone's, probably, you know, it's like 90% of those people have died. But, but there was a moment when there was a big family in Venezuela. And I sang a song about plastic surgery. And the chorus was, we're all going to die. <laughs> And I think that the only the lyric I remember is that it was the, I literally remember this lyric. I'm eight years old. You don't need I had an accent. I'm sure it's so like Enrique Iglesias. <laughs> you don't need no a plastic surgery, cause we're all going to die. <laughs> and they said, please never do that again. That was the the response to that. And then I thought, ooh, this is cool. I got something. You know, I had a weird childhood because I was just, I had a weird name and I was feminine and I was into solitary things like skateboarding. And so I was kind of, they kind of didn't have a lot of hope for me for early on. There's other cousins and they were getting better grades and they seemed more socially, they could maneuver that. They seemed like they could be more professional people. You know, those professional people you meet, they're like, they just know how to do it. You see, like, sometimes you see that kid, like, on the local news. It's like, this 12-year-old runs his own corporation. You're like, yeah. how the fuck does this kid know how to I do mean, that? I I'm did. a grown man. I don't know. No, I do, too. I just, I, sometimes, it's funny you say that. Sometimes I just sit around and think about, like, all of the things I just don't know, you know? And how do people know stuff? You know, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's amazing. And so, anyways, just had, I actually kind of maybe enjoyed that I got this attention, even though it wasn't a positive. It wasn't like, oh, you're going to be a songwriter. It was like, please never do that again. But I felt like vis I could felt seen, you know, and, and it's so powerful to feel seen. And I feel like I wonder, I was talking to my partner about this last night, that my dad, often when people meet my dad, they think he's flirting with them. And then they realize, oh, he's doing that with everybody. And he's not flirting. He's just actually curious in other people. So whoever it is, He's ordering a coffee. He's going to, oh, what's that? That's, nice, that's interesting. I'm like, well, where are you from? And he just gets to know everyone. And he's genuinely interested in people. And sometimes people misinterpret that as like, oh, this person's in love with me. Because it's just so rare to find somebody that's kind of even seeing them, being seen. So when you didn't get that positive feedback from your family, but instead of crushing you, that was that the first rush you got of like performing in front of somebody and having that feeling? And it was intoxicating? To some degree, it was more like I felt like, first off, I felt seen and I felt like I had a kind of power, even though it was negative. I can bum people out. I have the power to bum people out. Wow. And then I went to my first show ever, which was Guns N' Roses. And, you know, at that moment, they're the biggest band on the planet. And their backstage is a city, like tent. Look like 
a refugee camp, but it was like we, my brother snuck us, not backstage, but enough to get a glance into what was happening there. In my mind, I saw Slash's like top hat silhouette, <laughs> which I didn't, but in my mind, I saw, wow, in the distance. And people wearing like spandex and leopard print, you know, oh, cool long earrings. It was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I mean, I just, ah, but I didn't have that voice. I was eight. And so this all at the same time, my mom was, was travel a lot. I really spent a lot of time just kind of hanging on my own. And one day I just intuitively, I just knew I don't sound like these men, but something just said, put on mom's dress and just for fun, let's see what happens. And I put on my mother's dress and grabbed a comb and I was like, la, la, la. oh my God, I can sing like this. Like as this woman, I can sing. And I love it. I love wearing dresses to this day. It just feels good. And I felt like I could sing from that place. It kind of felt an even bigger secret space. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious. And there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references. And now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. After feeling the power that you had performing in front of someone, even if they didn't like what you were doing, but you had the power to affect them, I'm curious how that has followed through for the rest of your life. I'm like, what's your relationship between recording music in the studio versus touring? Like, do you appreciate the act of touring or would you be content just to sit and make music and, and put it out there? I mean, is there something innate and specific about performing in front of people that's incredibly important and rewarding? That all changed after the pandemic. I would have, before the pandemic, said that I would much rather just record. I don't want to have to ever play. And does that come from just being tired of touring or you just have never appreciated it as much as you do maybe now? Exactly. It's that. I didn't realize. The thing is, I loved it. But I thought, oh, I'm not a road dog, man. I want to just be at home and just in my, with my stuff, my toilet. I love my toilet. And I just, ugh, and my sheets. And I, I'm like so sensitive to sound. And, and on tour, you're just not, you haven't slept and you haven't eaten. And it's just how it is. You forget, you go to a show. You're like, oh, this is cool. I just like came from my house and I'm at the show. That's cool. Let's check out this band. But that band or that person's playing, like they haven't slept or eaten. It's just how it is. And so I'm just like, that's, I don't want to deal with that anymore. And I'd rather just write. In my head, I'm just a writer. I'm not out there performing. I'm not performing. But then after the pandemic, it's more that I realized that I actually 
I even loved it then when I was complaining about it. But nobody gave me like an instrument, like, here you go, kid, like, check this out. I wonder if some, that happened with you with a camera, though. Somebody give you a camera and you were like, whoa. My dad actually gave me a camera, his kind of hand-me-down camera. He was like a hobbyist, I guess, like when I was 18 or so. And I appreciated it. I messed around with it. I liked it, but I didn't see it as like my thing, quote unquote, until I moved to New York City and started hanging out with a bunch of photo assistants. And they were traveling the world, working with, you know, hot models and making good money and eating good food. They always look cool. They're always really, have really cool tattoos and they're dressed well. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, I could do that, you know? And so, I mean, I think I kind of, that was my impetus to really like lean in and, and kind of use that as my tool to kind of be creative. And it's funny, and I, I wanted to ask you about this too, because you're incredibly diverse in your output. Like you paint and you write poetry. And I mean, I, I assume you probably sculpt as well. Like, I don't know. But like, for me, I'm a photographer by trade, which I guess you could say is I'm in the visual arts, but I cannot paint. I can't sculpt. I mean, I, my natural talent probably veers more towards writing than a visual art, you know? So I think it's kind of unique in that sense. And do you surf? I do. And do you skate and snowboard and all that? I used to skate a lot more than I do, and I've been snowboarding a little bit more lately, but definitely surfing is kind of like something about just being in the water. It's a unique experience, you know? I know. I always say, it's like crazy I don't surf, but for me, what really I want to do is paddleboard. Is that right? Is that where I'm just standing? Yeah, yeah. Standing with the thing? Like, that is the dream. My favorite hero, superhero, is the silver surfer. I mean, I think about the silver surfer, like, whoa. Like, this person that's silver surfing in fucking space <laughs> it's like the most amazing image it's i could just think about the silver surfer and i'm like oh, in awe i'm wowed i'm just wowed see this is what i was thinking it'd be nice to start a dentist company i even thought of the name yesterday and i can't remember it now it's a stupid pun on something dental maybe transcendental but you get there and they put it the <laughs> the oculus rift or whatever the virtual virtual reality helmet on your head and let's say they go like what's a the most beautiful place in the world. You go, oh, I want to see a waterfall in the jungle or space and see the silver surfer. So they put the Oculus Rift, you, they, they show the silver surfer and you're going like this, going, wow, you're opening your mouth. And right then the dentist goes in, does all the work. You're tripping out, you're, you're in space. That'd just be a much more comfortable way of going to the dentist. You'd be excited yeah. to go to the dentist. I hope that gets implemented. Or you could be like, I'm never going to space because it's really fucking painful for it's some true. reason. It ruins space for you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to rein you in. I want to rein you in for one second. I want to talk about your fan base in South America because I'm really intrigued by that. Which country do you draw the biggest crowds in? Because I know you're very popular down there. Oh, um, I don't know. We were just there and I just played the first show of my whole life and where I'm from in Venezuela. You've never played there before? That's amazing. Never. We've been trying to play for 20 years. We've been trying to play for 20 years. And I've been playing for Craig for almost that much time too. And we just, every year it was like, it's going to happen. And then it would just fall through. But we, we finally played. It was really, it meant a lot. But we've played a lot of other countries down there through the years. Chile, and, big following, right? Yeah, Chile. We had, we had to cancel this time, but we're going in a couple of days. And Colombia is a great show and obviously Brazil. But it's a lot of places I've never even been to though. You know, Suriname, you know, Guyana. Um, but... Oh, and I love Uruguay. But it, I think the, the, the shows, I don't know if there's one place that there's more than another. I mean, the fact that you're able to communicate fluently in Spanish, I mean, and that, that I'm sure has I'm a I'm shocked that anyone impact. comes to the show. You know what I mean? I can't believe it. You know, we just played Ecuador. People were really nice. People were really, made us feel just really wonderful. Made us feel really special. 
And I feel like that's, I never think, oh, that's because of us. I just, it's like, wow, this is because these people are so wonderful. And this community of, of people are so rad. And it's typically the artsy kids that come to our shows. And it's the most beautiful thing to see them either find community or just be in, in community. Like that's a tight knit circle because yeah. it's not so easy to be an artist anywhere on earth. Really not in South, I don't think in South America. It's not too much of a encouragement. Then the weirdo kids, you know, that's a very important community and that's important to find. And it's rare when you have it. So it's nice. I feel like we just have an amazing time and people are so kind because of those people. Did you have a huge list for that? I mean, did friends, family, like people you hadn't seen it? Was it a big kind of homecoming for you? Well, it was a festival. So there was just people were there. But I did have, you know, I had my uncle and my cousins were there. And, and yeah, there was family was there and, and friends from kindergarten were there. That's so special. What I was so struck by was how amidst a dictatorship, which is really like the ultimate denial of the individual, you get the unicorn of, of eccentricity. I remember in China, China's also pretty much a dictatorship, I think. And it's an incredible place and an incredible culture. And I'm like so into so many aspects of it. And everyone I met was amazing. But I'm going to go on a crazy limb and say that the government is fucking insane and a total dictatorship. And you can't look up, we couldn't look up Winnie the Pooh when we were there. Somebody mentioned that Xi Jinping looked like Winnie the Pooh. I mean, it's a nuts. But amidst that, and also because of that, because of the government, nothing to do with the people, because of the government, there's a bit of a culture of kind of telling on people or calling out people that are going to, that are, that are sticking out too much or saying something anti-establishment. That's, you know, that's why I Weiwei's been in jail all the time, you know, but he's very rare and it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to make art there, to criticize. And amidst that, everyone's kind of paranoid looking over their shoulder. It's intense dictatorship. Amidst that, I met the most eccentric person I've ever met. This, this beautiful, beautiful man named Lee R. Young, who showed up in this like 90s Ross dress for less Santa Barbara mom blouse <laughs> and these giant bell bottoms and acoustic guitar and starts playing totally like, sounded like a Jandek song for 10 minutes. No chords, it's totally atonal and dissonant. And then suddenly it goes into, this is the end. Dun, dun, dun. He does the end. He opens his set with acoustic, the end. Who does that? <laughs> It's like, wow, we're, it's just incredible. So amidst that, my point is that amidst this kind of oppressive environment, you find people that just cannot help but be themselves and to express themselves. And that's so brave. The courage that that takes is so admirable. And I saw that in Venezuela. It's a dictatorship, very little support for the arts, unless it's like a song about how much we love the government. And amidst that, I saw these kids that were dressed so fun and stylish and hip and weird. They were just weird kids that all had their own bands and brands and had, there was, you know, and they had this whole community online and, and just, I, I didn't stop crying that whole trip. I cry easy. It's interesting you mentioned that about the, you know, the arts and the dictatorship, because I actually got to go there about 
10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. No way. Tell me, what was your experience? It was well, one of my best friends. He actually was on this podcast in one of the first seasons. His name's Spencer Tunick. And he's this artist, photographer, artist who does these huge installations of nude people in public spaces, but like massive. Like we did 5,000 people at the Sydney Opera House. We did wow. uh, 19,000 naked people in the Zocalo in Mexico City. I love it. I forgot the backstory, but we were basically were invited to Krakas to do a shoot. And it was a really creepy creepy vibe like we had this main avenue that was all lined off and we had you know full consent of the government so there was like a thousand military police like blocking off the street which was in our crop or whatever but there was more military police than there were participants and it was just very it was definitely like a weird paradox because it was like a very oppressive environment but we also had the full support of the oppressors so it was really interesting but fascinating to get to go how did that happen who greenlit that I mean, I love it. This is when Chavez was still alive. So this is, I'd probably 15 years ago, maybe. You know, they go Orwellian there, big time. With, on TV, they'll, in between commercials, it'll just be a footage of Chavez's eyes and then it'll dissolve. So in between commercials, it's like, there's the TV show, then there's commercials. In between commercials, just a shot of Chavez's eyes and it dissolves. Like, I'm watching you from the grave. Big Brother is watching. I mean, it is, it's amazing. Fascinating. Well, I want to talk about your process for a second. And you have put out a lot of different work. Your band has changed over the years. You've collaborated with some really well-known established artists. You've done some side projects. And this whole notion of group dynamics in a band, I've always found really fascinating as someone who's never really been in a band. I mean, this notion that you have four or five, six adults who go into a room and they have to make music together and they record music together. And then they travel and play music together and they make a living off of performing this music together. It just seems like such an an unnatural, bizarre unit to be a part of. (laughs) You know, I'm curious, when you're working with your band versus like, say, an established artist who's really well known in his own right, is that process different? Is it more democratic? Do you approach it differently? I mean, are you the czar when it's Devendra Banhart in the studio? And how does that work? Yeah, yeah, the czar. I'm the czar. I'm the czar. <laughs> it's amazing. It's changed through the years because I've been playing with these people since we were like little kids. And I always valued the ability to continue a conversation with instruments over skill. So I never played with anybody based on like how good they were, even though everyone is pretty good. I mean, Greg's amazing, but it's just about we love each other. We fell in love. We're like total you know, family, that made me want to play music with him. And then it turns out that we can continue a conversation with the instruments. But that's, the, that's really valuable. It's an interesting thing that I've never even thought of it as weird, that here we are, a bunch of adults, four or five of us traveling together in a van around the world. That to me is the most normal thing. And this, talking to you here at home, this is weird. Yeah. I remember when the security at LAX recognized me not because I make music, but because I'm just the guy that's always there. <laughs> like, oh, this is like my office. I'm going to get that burrito and then I'll go to the Starbucks. And you're like, this is my office. And I'm, you know, it's an amazing. I'm very fortunate. For, but that's a more normal way of being. And in fact, I'm more, much more disciplined and know how to know what to do with myself. That sense of knowing what to do with myself, which is basically having a sense of purpose, is much stronger when I'm on tour or when I'm with those people. 
During the actual like writing and recording process, is there a different approach when you're working with people that you've worked with, like Greg, for a very long time, or let's say you're doing like a one-off collaboration with Beck or another artist? I mean, does that collaboration look different? A little bit. Some of those things are always a little more homeworky to me. Like it's really fun, and and I just did a cover of a Gaetano Veloso song for the Red Hot and Trans compilation that's going to come out soon, and I recorded it with Blake Mills. Blake and I went to high school together. And I love him, but we're there kind of, we're really, it's like a project that we're considering in a very different way than we would, let's write a song. We're thinking about a cover of a person who wrote it, a song during a dictatorship, and how are we going to approach this? How close to the original are we going to be? What do we want to say in our version of it? What kind of space do we want to make? So it's more of this challenging project, I don't know how else to put it, and which I guess is homeworky, you know? When you guys don't see eye to eye, maybe not aggressively, but just you have a difference of opinion on how something is done. Is that disagreement settled differently when it's Devendra Banhart and his band versus Devendra Banhart and an established artist collaborating? I'm trying to make a, I don't know, I want to make a good joke, but I don't have any. <laughs> but you know what, to, I want, can I tell you a good yeah, joke? Yeah. It's the last thing you want to hear when you're giving Willie Nelson a blowjob. What? I'm not Willie Nelson. <laughs> So, you know, when we're recording together, I typically kind of go overboard and write a bunch of shitty songs, too many. And then I present them to, to everyone. I go, what's good here? I have no, I can't be a, objective. I just can't. I'll never know if what I'm doing is actually good or not. Because for me, it's interesting. I tried a different chord, tried a couple of different words. This melody seems new. And so I just can't see if it's really good. I really rely on their opinion. That's so fascinating because I guess what I was getting at is I just assumed that, for instance, I saw the Beatles Get Back documentary. It was just a fascinating insight into the politics of how a unit creates art. And in my mind, I guess what I was getting at with my question is I just assumed that you had headstrong ideas of what you liked. And sometimes that aligns with the rest of your band and sometimes it doesn't. But what you're telling me is you actually look to them for not validation, but for input. Absolutely. And I pretty much tell, I mean, Greg, it's like, please do whatever you want. Everyone, actually everyone, Nicole, everyone in the band, I go, just do your thing. I love what you do. It's definitely not for, yeah, not for improvement, but improvement, you know, like the, and for approval. I want them to approve. I want them to be happy with it for sure. And I think we all, from the beginning of our careers and our body of work, we're trying to write for one or two people typically, and that sustains for most of our career. You know, I remember Kurt Vonnegut always saying he's just writing for his sister. And then she passed away, and then I think he could just, he's still writing for his sister, basically. And there's always a few people that we're always writing to impress. And some of them will never hear what we do or see what we do. But it's an interesting thing. Maybe sometimes it's our parents. Yeah. Sometimes it's a lover. Sometimes, yeah, it's a sibling. That's interesting, though, because I just, in my mind, I had envisioned it. You know, after watching the Beatles documentary, you have two, there's three band members who are walking into a room saying, I have this idea that I think is great. How do we decide which one of those ideas gets to go on the album? But that's not really the case with you. You're saying you really respect and look to them for their input. It's not, but I think that's happening in that doc too. I remember when that scene where George Harrison is like, well, I was last night watching telly and I wrote, I Me mine and he's playing it, but he's presenting it cool and mellow, but he's also, he wants to get it on there. And he's doing that to impress those three other people, yeah. not doing it to impress anyone else. I love that scene. The original lyrics when he's like to something, he's like something in the way you move attracts me like a pomegranate. 
<laughs> that was the original. That was the original. <laughs> no yeah, that's amazing. And you get to see it in live time. I think everyone else is like, not quite there, but you're onto something. That's amazing. Oh, tracks me like a pomegranate. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, you have such a, a keen eye and a keen interest in design and fashion and art. And we had Damon Way on the podcast a few weeks ago, really talented designer, co-founder of DC Shoes. And we talked about some of the things that he encounters every day that he just cannot stand. Like he mentioned the taillights from the new Toyotas. It's just like he cannot oh. stand it from a design standpoint. Is there anything like that that you encounter on a daily basis, whether it's like fashion or industrial design, anything? What an interesting question. I feel like I'm the most curmudgeon snob imaginable most of my life. And especially in the United States, it's just everything's so ugly. So I don't know if we have like 400 hours for me to tell you how ugly I think things are. This is a lot. Give me an example. Jeez, there's really is a lot. But then at the same time, at the same time, as much as I can step into a room and go like, ugh, look at that rug and look at that floor and look at those shoes and look at this and look at that. I always go a little further and go, oh, well, it's actually kind of amazing. Well, I kind of dig that. So I try to kind of imagine or remember that somebody else finds that to be like the most beautiful thing on earth. But I probably say that's repulsive, you know, more than any other thing. But when you were beginning to ask me about that, like having this, like those things that kind of irk him, and I didn't know you were going to go towards design, but as you're asking me, the first thing that came to mind was people that put American flags outside of their houses. It's so like, that bums me out when I see that. Like I, we're in the country and you put the flag of the country. That to me is, it's like, I'm bummed. Why don't you put a flag of Brazil or something? Put a different flag. Isn't That makes more sense. I know what country we're in. And I get that you want to say, like, you love this country. I get that. But somehow when I see an American flag outside of a house in the country, how about this? Anywhere. The flag of the country in the country that you're in. That's a no-go for you. Makes me feel shitty. That's so funny. I go, oh, fuck. Uh, this sucks. This is a bummer. That's my answer for <laughs> That's now. good. <laughs> So negative. So negative. Well, we always like to end the podcast by, by asking the guests to recommend or shout out something that they're not directly involved with, but they feel isn't getting enough attention, whether it's a book or a movie or an artist oh, or a cause. Cool. I mean, do you want to shout something out that you feel like the people should know about that maybe isn't getting enough attention? Well, I feel like that is maybe there's some general things that we maybe dedicate our whole lives to supporting and wanting people to know about. And maybe we discover that thing every day or today's the day that that's discovered or yesterday was the day. So what's your answer? And I wonder, yeah, what's your answer first? Oh, for my answer? I mean, I guess recently I have to say, I just saw, it's not really underground. It just won the best documentary feature, but I watched the movie, the documentary Navalny this weekend. Navalny, yeah. Jaw dropping. Absolutely insane. And like a true definition of a hero. Fantastic movie. So definitely I would shout that out. That's the only thing I saw in the Oscars. That was a very moving moment when they won and his family was there. Oh, that was heartbreaking. I broke down, started crying. I mean, the courage that he took to purposefully go back to Russia, basically knowing what was going to happen to him. It's heroic. It's really, it's fascinating. So let's, everyone, please watch that. I watched some time ago, but it was reminding me of that, is uh, the Sinead O'Connor documentary. It really moved me. It really got me. You know, you get a sense of what they had to go through as just like a woman in the music industry and how lecherous and exploitative and objectified she was and how much shit she had to go through. It's heartbreaking, actually. Yeah. But I mean, it's an amazing doc. 
I love that scene. I haven't seen the movie, but I assume it's in it when Chris Christopherson is kind of consoling her on the side of the stage after she get, she got booed right after she tore the picture oh, on SNL. Yeah. Like that's on there. That's on there. He's fantastic. Uh, so beautiful. But I, I guess the thing that maybe I feel like to draw attention to personally and something that I'm kind of always thinking about and I know is huge and I know everyone knows about, but it still is something that I still go, wow, this is still happening, is Tibet. Tibet was invaded by China in 1949, and 10 years later, the Dalai Lama escaped, and he hasn't been back to the country that he's the rightful ruler of since then. He's been in exile in Dharamsala for decades. And Tibetan people to this day are, have been you know, living just in a police state where it's illegal to speak your language or practice your religion. And that's just ongoing. And people are burning themselves, self-emoliating themselves to just bring light to that. And it's so beautiful because, of course, they're doing that in protest, and they also don't want to hurt the, the perpetrators. They don't want to hurt, the, so they're hurting themselves in order to bring light to the pain that their entire people are experiencing. And I remember as a kid, it was like, free Tibet. Oh, that was a concert. That was a really cool show that Radiohead played. <laughs> yeah. You know, the PC Boys. R.I.P. Awesome. Yeah. Tibet. Yeah. Yeah. It's ongoing. So I, that's a one where I always think, wow, anything that can be done to kind of remind people about that. And I saw a great, uh, the John Oliver episode about the Dalai Lama. That was wonderful. But it still feels like, I don't know, I kind of want to hear about that every day. I've been a fan of your work for quite some time. We've crossed paths briefly over the years, but I really want to say thanks for taking the time out. And I also want to say, I want to say thank you on behalf of my mom. She's actually a huge fan of your work. And Greg hooked her up. She went and saw you at the Ventura Theater right before COVID a couple years ago. What? Oh, what's her name? Her name's Pat. Hey, Pat. Hi, Pat. So she absolutely oh, that's so, that's loved smart. it. And my mom had a <laughs> wonderful time. And she's a big fan, so I wanted to give her a shout out. Thanks. Give your mom a hug for me. And that means a lot. <laughs> Anyways, I would like to paddleboard by as you surf, catch some waves. I want to take a photo of you surfing. Okay, we're going to get it together. You know, I take photos. I take photos, man. We could take, let's have a photo. Hey? All right, we'll keep in touch. We'll make that happen. And best of luck. You're going out on the road soon. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to see Greg tomorrow, so I'll send him some love. Send him my love. Tell him appreciate it once again. And uh, Devendra, I hope to see you soon, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. Have a good one, man. See you later. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.